Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. I'm an adjunct loser and a co-host of a new podcast called Space the Nation. I've been covering politics for over 20 years. My co-host, Dan Dresner, is a professor of international relations at Tufts University, and we're both huge science fiction nerds. So our podcast is about the politics in science fiction, how characters and plot lines deal with power structures and alliances, economic forces and class struggles, and how these events reflect historical events and are explained by real political theory. We also do some serious fan personing. If you're a Stephen King fan listening to a two-hour Stephen King podcast, I think you'll like it. We just finished recapping The Expanse Season 5, and now we're moving on to look at things like Ender's Game, Alien, and The Left Hand of Darkness. If you're interested, you can find out more on patreon.com slash space the nation, or you can get us wherever you get your podcast. See you there. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of oh, All in the name of oh, All in the name of oh. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Today we'll be barreling straight into part two of our dissection of desperation. If for some reason you haven't listened to part one, it's there, waiting for you like a motorcycle glinting beneath a mound of sand. Enjoy. Welcome to Structure and Format, the section where we discuss structure and format. This is a pretty simple section here. This isn't one of his more ambitious books in terms of, um, in a narrative sense, but I will say it, the back half to me felt a little bit disorienting because we spend so much time uh, with our main characters popping around between all these different, uh, this, this ensemble, and then... I feel like a lot of the latter half of the book is dominated by these italicized flashbacks that are mm -hmm. extremely long. Um, was that um, was that cool? Was that a cool deviation for you guys? Or did you find it distracting and wish they had perhaps peppered it out more throughout the book instead of this big block of text? What do you guys think? Um, I'll just, as having read it uh, over the summer, once they escape from confinement it sort of felt like that was the end of the first half of the novel. And I was surprised yeah. that there were still like three to 400 pages left. I didn't, you know, I seem to recall, uh, and Trajan being alive a lot longer than he was. Yeah. Um, but once he's out of the body, I was like, man, they still got a long way to go here. Mm -hmm. Getting the band back together. Yeah. It's, to me, it was, uh, I, I kind of just missed the energy of the early part of the book because I, I love it when King sort of, one of the things that I think King does so well, and I, I know I talked about this in the Needful Things episode because he does it there, is he's so good at managing ensembles. Like he's so good at uh, nice punchy short chapters, chapters that uh, bleed into the other and that 
uh, expertly sort of interweave all the different various characters. And there is this sort of satisfying aspect, especially in this book of bringing them together like halfway through. Like, you know, when Steve and Cynthia, all the gang, the Intragian survival squad, all that, and even Audrey, like when they all meet up in the theater, there's something really cool and satisfying about that. So I don't know, for me, um, I didn't dislike it, but I will say that I just found like the energy of the book shifted a little bit when we kind of, you know, go back and we learn about Carrie Ripkin and Brad Josephson and all these new characters that sort of help pinpoint the evolution of Tack leading up to Kali, which was cool. But I don't know. I think perhaps part of me would have enjoyed if that stuff had maybe been pieced out a little bit more. And I think that that relates to the fact that, you know, the whole once they get into the theater, then we get this huge story from Billingsley about, um, you know, the Chinese miners and all of that stuff. And then all we find out later in the flashback or in the dream sequence with um, David and uh, Vietnam Johnny, that a lot of that information wasn't entirely correct. So it's like, we're kind of revisiting the same events and learning what was true and what wasn't. And then we're getting like the direct, uh, you know, memories of tack. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. I think that in terms of, of narrative structure, that was the only thing that I found a little bit off-putting because I think there's an energy to the early parts that isn't recaptured again until kind of they go into the mind together. So so I confess I'm a sucker for like origin stories. Mm. Um, I always love like favorite part of The Shining is when well, I'm one my favorite part, but like I love the scrapbook and The Shining. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, I Me love too. the really racist, but still... Um, good read <laughs> that, the, that the whole Chinese minor um, yeah. stuff yeah. is. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, origin King, I think does pretty good origin stories. So I liked that. I do think the flashbacks get a little much, but yeah. Yeah, this yeah. book could have used an editor, I think, a little, a bit of a stronger one. I'm not sure it needed to be as long as it is. And I think if you could cut fat from anything, it's a lot of those latter uh, yeah. flashback sequences. They just stretch on for quite a while. I remember when I was young and in the boat in Houghton Lake reading this, I feel like I skimmed some of those because mm. I was like, get me back to the ensemble. Like, get me back to Johnny and, and David and Steve and Mary. Those are the characters yeah. I was I was invested in. Um, any other thoughts on structure and format? This is uh, either usually a really long section or a really short one. Um, yeah. I got to give a shout out to audiobooks in general because italicized text, boldface text, I don't yeah. I didn't know any of that was happening. And so it's just it's another reason that I love audiobooks. Um I also am like I love when they find the scrapbook that like <laughs> informs so much of what we already know like I it always reminds me of like the microfiche montage in a movie, you know, which is one of my favorite parts of any horror movie that chooses to include that. Um I think um Dan, I think you said earlier, like, I lost track of some of the characters at a certain point. And I wonder, like, I don't want to talk about, like, the two books together, but at a certain, there were times where I felt like the inclusion of characters that I don't know would have been included if this was a standalone novel. Um, I mean, I guess it kind of is, but you know what I mean. Um, I also, um, I don't love the way the female characters are not super developed. I, those were the three mm. that I really had a hard time distinguishing between Ellen, Mary, and Audrey. Um, mm. And I think partly because they are serving the same function in a lot of ways, like they are a vessel for talk. Um, but yeah, that's that's my one... Well, I've got some other quibbles, but that's, I think, my one f- like criticism of the structure and format is I feel like it just kind of gets a little muddy in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, all right, let's get on to meteor stuff with a section we call Heroes and Villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the 
Breakfast Club, asshole! Here in Heroes and Villains, we talk about the characters. Um, and there's a good chunk to chat about here. We don't have to talk about all of them, but actually, I don't know. When we do ensembles, I like to kind of talk about like, which character did you most relate to? Like which chapters did you find yourself looking forward to? Which character like was that for you? Uh, for me, I'll start. It was uh, Steve, who, I don't know, to me felt like a really fun um, kind of character that, I don't know, I feel like this isn't, the kind of character I've seen in King a lot where it's this supporting guy who is a little bit of a hippie and a rambler and kind of, I don't know, like it was an archetype, like kind of the stoner archetype that I feel like I haven't seen in a lot of King works or at least recent ones. And I just kind of liked his vibes and I loved his relationship with Cynthia. Like um, it's kind of a love story that I found myself, you know, I kind of like how he kind of downplays the love story and it kind of just happens organically in the background. Um, so I don't know. And I like their dynamic. I like their engagement and, um, and they actually get a couple really cool, creepy scenes together. So I don't know. I'm a Steve guy. Uh, Jen, how about you? Which character did you find yourself looking forward to? I think probably Cynthia the most. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed, especially seeing her in Rose Matter before. I liked seeing her have a little bit more of a personality and kind of what I was saying before. I think she is the female character that really pops. Um, and she is introduced in a way that I don't love, but I think she becomes a, a fully developed character. Even though she doesn't have that much to do like she feels like kind of a side character in a lot of ways but yeah she was fun I also want to see what like Sarah go ahead what do, you, what do you mean you don't like her introduction um I just King always has to talk about the shirt that she's wearing and the fact that the <laughs> armholes are so big and that she could like I pulled some of that in my uh, misery is like she could still shop at the training bra section it's like I I don't you know yeah. I don't need that talk more about her two-toned hair because I want to know what that <laughs> looks like so I did really like Marinville. I mean, I guess, you know, as a writer also, like he's just, I mean, it's also fellow alcoholic. Um, I agree with Jen that the female characters are problematic. Um, Audrey, especially. King has this thing with manipulative women. Like he just really (laughs) loves to like, disparage them and kind of make them seem a little bit slimy, especially women who kind of suck up to men in some way. And those women exist. Yeah, sure. They sure do. But I always feel like his distaste and resentment for them kind of spoils them because you know one thing that king usually is pretty like well not pretty good at but he sometimes he is able to show like affection for his evil care or his not good characters Mm -hmm. and you know make them feel like full people and like audrey doesn't feel like a real person at all i oddly i i kind of related to brian and david when they were adolescents Mm -hmm. um i love that like i have fond memories of being like 11 12 years old with my friends and it's a weird period for a guy because you know you're still a boy but the men in your life you kind of start imitating them so like when they're watching the mummy and he's like oh shit the mummy's after us let's all walk a little faster it's like this you're starting to dip your toe into sarcasm and profanity and it was just a it's an interesting period and it's funny to see you know Obviously, like David goes on to become much more mature, but I just like when the way Brian is portrayed, that felt very accurate to that age group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really loved 
the simplicity of the mummy bit because that is the kind of bit you do when you're kind of a yeah. young kid and just the th- part of the thrill of it is saying shit you know and um yeah and just walking a little bit faster like i don't know that that to me was very sweet and i kind of love that as a through line uh throughout it and this whole concept of the mummy coming after us being i don't know something that took on more and more weight and more and more kind of ominousness as it went on uh that was yeah that was like a cool little detail um I think with uh, a question, another question that I have here is with Kali and Tragian, um, I guess like how much of Kali do you think is like the real Kali is like bleeding through uh, and like how much of what we're seeing is related to the actual character? Do you think Tack has fully possessed this guy or are parts of him still resonating? Because I think one of the things I love is there's like a bit where he turns on his turn signal, even though there's nobody around. And that just struck me. And I feel like there might be a line that references that, but it's like, that struck me as such like an esoteric like thing that probably the real guy did. And I kind of love when the little details bleed through and this person is not fully controlled by Tack. I don't know. Do you guys, did you guys think about that at all? Yeah, I think it sort of exaggerated his worst qualities. Uh, he seems like a pedantic lawman, right? But he's also, mm-hmm. he was physically huge beforehand. And yeah. all my friends I know that are that big, like people just look at you different. Like when you walk into a bar, people kind of check you out like, oh, is he bigger than the bouncer? Like, how are we going to stop him? <laughs> and the fact that he's continuing to grow throughout, I think it's just, it's like supernatural steroids or something. It's just exaggerating sort of his worst violent qualities. Yeah, I think I kind of I hadn't really thought about that. And I would like to think that um, Kali is not really there at all, because if he is, then that is horrifying, especially given (laughs) the amount of characters that are possessed by talk. But I think like I kind of look at it as like when um, in the drawing of the three, like when he has access to the Mortsipedia, you know, and this is like what he would do. So he's just pulling the levers based on what he finds. But I mean, I think we can probably assume that talk is not down in the mine reading Johnny Marinville. So he wouldn't be familiar. (laughs) So like there's a level of knowledge that he is like he's probably still there. And I mean, I've recently watched Get Out. So there's the element of like the sunken place and you're watching everything, but you have no control. But that's just horrifying to imagine your body being like ripped apart in every conceivable part of it and just being along for the ride and aware. So I would like to think that they're not aware and they're not there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking, but. No, I I like that. I think that's a good answer. Um. Speaking of Johnny, I got a lot of guard vibes from Tommyknockers. And and it made me consider, because I know that when we did our episode on the Tommyknockers, Mel (laughs) had a lot of trouble with guard because she found him to be pretty despicable in terms of his past and that he had like, you know like pointed a gun at his ex-wife and was really abusive and all these other things. And for her, that made it really hard to get on his level. (laughs) Did any of you struggle with that with Johnny? Because he talks about how he beat up his ex-wife and, um, and, you know, clearly was a wrecking ball kind of presence in the lives of a lot of people around him. Was that any, in any way, um, alienating to you or was it, or did it just make the character more, I don't know, compellingly flawed? I didn't really like him. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I didn't. I didn't really connect with him either. It felt like kind of a shallow uh, portrayal of an author compared to some of the other King works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just didn't really make a strong connection. Like I, I agree with you, Randall. Like I was more into Steve, his assistant. Um, yeah. Just I guess the idea of living in the shadow of greatness was a more interesting trait than 
like, you know, the guy that writes a book that becomes famous and then he's sort of like dismissive of like, oh, it's not even my best one. I'm always like, all right, dude. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm the odd one out. And I don't know if I liked him, but mm. I don't know. Like, I felt like there, to a certain degree, like we were talking about how much of King is in there. I, to a certain degree, I think he was mocking Johnny, right? I mean, like, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and so I just enjoyed it. I think I guess I enjoyed those chapters more than I mm-hmm. liked Johnny. Although I did see the alcoholism is was sort of like, I'm always curious about how he does that and how he weaves it in. Steve is a great character. I felt a little condescension towards him. From Steve. From oh, Steve. interesting. Yeah. Just a little. But um, I think he really likes to think he gets working class people, but I'm not <laughs> sure that he still does. So yeah, he hasn't lived working class accurate. in a long time. Mm-mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And when I think about whether I like Johnny, because Anna, you said something earlier that I think I was kind of have been thinking about um, because I think he's he's a flawed character. Johnny is very flawed. And the f- parts of his character that are flawed, some of them are just because he is who he is. And some of them are because he is an alcoholic who is not dealing with his addiction. And I kind of like that because when I was going to meetings, like I knew a lot of people that were would say things that I, I would not really want to be friends with them outside of the rooms. But like we could really talk about things and connect on another kind of level. And I like that like those two things can be separate, you know, and he like having that humbling moment doesn't necessarily mean he's going to stop saying all the shit that pissed me off about like his ex-wife, you know? Um, It just means that he, and maybe he'll get there in time with that level of understanding, but you know, so I guess it is a little bit of an endearing flawed character. Yeah. And Anna, you're not the odd one out because I also like, uh, or I'm intrigued by Johnny. I enjoyed his chapters quite a bit because I think for me, and I think there is a difference between him and guard. Um, I, because I don't know if, if King necessarily sees, um, Johnny as much of a hero as he did guard. Um, yeah. And I, like you mentioned that he is making fun of him a little bit. And Johnny, to me, I think when I was young, I always posited him as the main character. But when I read it now, I don't really don't see it that way. Um, this is one of those books where pinpointing a main character for me is something that um, I can't really, I mean, I guess David maybe, but at the same time, this book's, a, I, I like books where there's not necessarily a really hard, clear protagonist. Um, because I don't know, I like when equal weight is kind of given to uh, various characters, but it's very clear that Johnny is someone who King probably relates with the most. And um, and for me, the, like and Mel and I, and Justin discussed this on the Tommyknockers episode, is like, I, I wasn't as put off by, guards violent past because for me he this was a character that was in search of redemption and i think that uh i'm always drawn when people who have done unforgivable things are now sort of searching for some kind of forgiveness or some kind of uh you know reinterpretation of their life and it's inter- and it's different too because guard was still in the throes of his alcoholism throughout the book of the tommy knockers whereas johnny is you know in this process of sobriety and um that to me it's, it's like a different texture to the character that i really enjoy and that i feel like um this is a character who is begrudgingly trying to be better whereas guard was still kind of reveling in a lot of his worst impulses so and uh i mean tommy knockers i think a lot of people kind of agree is a pretty um i like the book more than most i am the losers club resident tommy head so um i I like tommy knockers it's (laughs) it's it's it's, i you know i think i told you desperation was the book i wanted to do like when we first got in touch i like his weird shit like i I really feel like he's doing some of the most interesting work as it 
mm-hmm. were like and and yeah the Tommy Knockers is so strange. It's just such a strange mm-hmm. book. Like it makes it different from his others. Like, you know, I would love to have a discussion with everyone about what is the most like like high quality Stephen King. Mm, yeah. Like mm-hmm. literary and um intellectually and, and all that. It's not Tommy Knockers. No. <laughs> <And> it's <Yeah>. not this. <laughs> it's definitely not regulators. Um yeah. That's got it. Yes. I enjoy some of his stuff that's that's kind of trashy. Yes, same. I'm very much on that on that thing because I think for me, if you look at a hero like Ben Mears, right, or even Stu Redman from The Stand, like these are pretty noble guys. Like they're not one-dimensional necessarily, but they they don't have a lot of spark to them. They don't have a lot of like danger to them. And so I think that's what I like about Johnny and and um and someone like Guard perhaps is that they're you know they're they're pretty they're not characters that are necessarily traditional heroes. And um I don't know. And I like the aspect that uh i don't know that they're just extremely fucked up and flawed people and i think he fits those characters more into his weirder work and they kind of mm-hmm. dovetail with with a lot of the strange shit that's going on i mean yeah and we'll talk about it more i'm sure in the coming things but you know desperation is such a weird book i mean this is a a book where like you know uh scorpions and snakes are lining up in the road in like a, like army formation mm-hmm. and uh you know buzzards are attacking on you know on people's uh like command and getting their wings ripped off it's to me um oops sorry that's my cat um <laughs> hi there <laughs> and, um yeah so it's such a such a strange book and i but yeah. i love that about it speaking of strange it might be fun i think i want to talk about tack a little bit because i feel like Tack to me is, you know, it's. I think when we talk about King villains, I think the word developed maybe isn't the right word, but sometimes you get more insight into his villains than in some books than others. You know, sometimes the villain exists just to, um, just to, uh, you know, be that menacing thing. Um, but sometimes we do get some insight into, you know, the way this monster thinks. And Tack is one of those characters. Um, and... I don't know. And so, um, and we do get, we also get these scenes of the characters sort of trying to wrap their brains around what Tack is. And I thought this was an interesting quote from David uh, near the end of the book, page 550. He says, I think it's more like a disease than a spirit or even a demon. The Indians may not have even known it was here. And it was here before they were, long before. Tack is the ancient one, the unformed heart and the place where it really is, on the other side of the throat at the bottom of the well. I'm not sure that place is on Earth at all, or even in the normal space. Tack is a complete outsider, so different from us uh, that we can't even get our minds around him. Uh, which, there's some real Pennywise, um, you know, I yeah. think, uh, shades there. So I don't, a well. Yeah, and there's another well. He loves his wells. Um, so do I. <laughs> so how do we like Tack as, uh, as a villain? Is he... Is this one of the more I because I think I introduced him as such. I'm a big tack fan, and perhaps because I don't know, we've never really seen there is the desperation miniseries, but I don't think a lot of people know much about that. We haven't really seen like a definitive version of tack on screen, like we have Pennywise and Randall Flagg. So I think I like tack because he remains sort of unformed in my mind a little bit. Um, and and I do also like that he's you know, like in the same way that we associate it with Pennywise. Um, 
we can associate Tack with Kali, which I think is interesting because the idea of kind of a monstrous cop is something that is also very scary to me as somebody who has had some bad interactions with with police in the past. So um, I don't know. What what are your reactions to Tack? How did you how did you respond to this villain? I am. I've always, sorry. I mean, I think one of the reasons I've liked desperation and its weirdness to me, like the scorpions and spiders and stuff, like I have some things to say about them as plot devices. Save that. Sure. It, the weirdness is the Cantoy and the can, and the can, Canta, Canta, the little figurines and then making you want to do like weird, violent sex. Like, I think that's always kind of intrigued me. Like, yeah. And it's a, it's a mythology that I think is unique to this book, right? This is this is the first time he really engages in it. And the idea of these little, I mean, where did the fuck did they come from, right? Yeah. And they're just discovered. And one of the things I think that I like about them and they're sort of mysterious is that talk is presented as like this, you know, entity, but yet there's all these like carvings yeah. buried under however many tons of sand. Where did they come? I, I mean, I like that. I like how mysterious mm-hmm. it is. I like that they corrupt people in this really insidious way. Like they take something about you that may already be kind of flawed. Like for instance, a cop having some, you know, uh, overly um, authoritarian ideas and mm-hmm. make that like the word, like, and then just blow that up kind of. Yeah. Um, like with Audrey, you know, again, flawed kind of depiction, but like take maybe what was a part of her and turn it into like, the thing that she acts out on. I like that. I, I think mm-hmm. that it's a, a cool kind of conceit. But Kali, I also, I have some like cemetery. Oh, nice. Yeah, I have him. some cemetery with him too. Very creepy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Dan, your thoughts on on Tack? Oh, uh, yeah, I really like Tack. And I like the way that the name sort of gets peppered in like an irresistible impulse of just like Tack. Oh, just yeah. Kind of mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Throws it out there. Um, And, you know, I think he's like a Todash monster. Um, mm. he's kind of similar to like it Dandelo, but it seems like he's not like, he's not really formed, right? He's more of like an essence. And that's why, you yeah. know, he obviously can only sort of travel around by possessing people. But I also get the impression that he sort of shies away from the Crimson King. Cause there's a lot of stuff about him being like, I forget the exact wording, but it was like, I'm not paying attention. And it seems like Tak kind of just does his own thing. Like yeah. he's not, he's not willing to have any master. Um, and that's probably also why he's going to be stuck down in that mine forever. Um, and I think, you know, like the Kanta and the Kantoi, because I believe the Kantoi are like the low man, yeah. you know, kind of like the rat creatures. But I thought it was cool, too, with like the carvings and, you know, you, you discover these ancient civilizations and you find these like chimera creatures where it's, you know, merging of multiple animals into one. Yeah. And I like the idea that when they touch it, they're just like, yeah, their sexuality, like it just provokes hedonism. And you think like through all the histories of humans that have come across tack and like what effect has he had on them? and probably led to all of their downfall over time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the general perversion that is associated with tack is what I'm drawn to. Um, the the merging of these different animal bodies and also, you know, uh, human bodies. I think I read a quote earlier when Johnny is in, you know, tack's lair and sees all the different Kanta and some of them have like baby faces and he describes them as gnomish, which to me is just, you know, leering and gnomish. It's like there's this general sense of perversion, especially as it applies to animals and then children that uh, that kind of is associated with tack and the idea that it feeds on our basis impulses and kind of weaponizes our basest impulses um, is is very eerie to me. It just reminds me a lot of, you know, one of my, the scariest parts in It to me is when Pennywise uh, uh, 
kind of, you know, there's a, a photo of Christ um, and, and then the Christ becomes like really sexual and perverted, like it like waggles its tongue at the kids. And that to me, um, and then, you know, obviously we have the similar moment in Tommyknockers with the Christ painting, but yeah, just the general perversion of sacred things, um, but also innocent things is to me that it, it makes tack like extra evil to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's clearly, I think something that was in King's mind, the idea of, of the perversion of sacred things, because even in Rose matter, which, you know, he wrote around the same time, uh, there's a dream sequence there where Rose keeps seeing um, various statues that are like, are being very sexual with her. Like they're breaking their forms and wagging their tongues at her and doing all these other things. And, and uh, I think that's something that King was very interested in and something he really, I think kind of epitomizes with Tack here, who is to me just a, a very perverse monster. Um, yeah. yeah. Like nothing noble here. Um, yeah. I, I really enjoy Tack. And I think that is kind of, he kind of redeems what the, some of my bigger problems with the overall concept of this book are, because if I'm looking at the higher power as Ka and I'm looking at, and I'm speaking only for myself here, I want to make that very clear. The Christian understanding of God in this book as a part of that higher power and maybe an entity on a spectrum of a higher power and talk is another entity on that spectrum, then that leaves me open to saying, okay, maybe there's more, maybe there's something else that I will connect to. And that kind of opens my door to understanding that. I also think it's interesting that we are introduced to him in the form of a police officer who is an authority figure. So if like you could look at David's God and talk or as two warring authorities and who is going to, and I look at it, I don't necessarily look at it as good or evil. And that is my interpretation, but I look at it as a balance and like which one you know, which I think is really fascinating. And I think it more just opens the door for me to not say this is the right and the wrong, you know? Right, right. Because he's not called the devil, you know? And I think right. that's interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's just kind of this this really, to me, um, ephemeral manifestation of evil that I mm-hmm. think, yeah, which to me is uh, is almost more compelling. Um, there's a couple other, I don't know, there's a line, I, I feel like they describe Tack as a serial killer a lot or a murderer, which is something I feel like we don't get as much. I mean, Pennywise is obviously, you know, a serial killer, but uh, was, but, you know, was was kind of focused primarily on children. And I think with Tack, he's more of just kind of um, a chaotic murderer, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, just the idea of decimating this entire town is really freaky. Mary has a line that's a little corny, but I kind of liked it. Uh, She says, he's not just a serial killer. He's the Bram Stoker version of Dr. Doolittle, which to (laughs) me um, is a bit of a silly line, but one that I enjoyed. Uh, And then, yeah. And I think this is a line too um, that, that really worked for me. And this touches on something you said earlier, Anna, we were talking about um, a a lot of King villains and kind of the best way to sort of summarize them and the idea of how infallible they are is uh, evil is both fragile and stupid, dying soon after the ecosystem it's poisoned, Uh, which was an interesting thing to me because it feels like TAC doesn't necessarily have a long-term plan for what it's trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think think it's it's the planned and the chaos, definitely. And I also, I just want to echo, I love the fact that there's always kind of middle managers, Mm -hmm. you know, in Steve's, 
Steve King's like Steve, 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 Steve. Um, <laughs> and King's um, kind of hierarchy of evil. Like there's no boss right. in a way, or everyone has a boss. Like there's everyone's Michael Scott yep, yep. and Dwight. Yes. Like they're assistant to the regional manager or the regional assistant manager, one of the two. Um, and they're in that yet they have this, I guess Dwight is actually maybe like the right sort of um, uh person to the right metaphor because they think they have a lot of power and they do Mm -hmm. but it's maybe not quite as much as they think they do and also it's it's only expressed i'm not gonna i'm gonna get away from the dwight metaphor now but um (laughs) the 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 fact that hedonism is so related to it too Mm -hmm. i think there's a little bit of dipping into this idea that and it's sort of a Christian idea. It will exists in other religions as well, which is that there's no such thing as evil. There's what men do, mm, right? Mm-hmm. That evil is the thing that men do. Yeah. It's allowed by God. Yeah. And it exists in the universe, but it can only, you know, Randall Flagg, uh, it is an exception that it can exist without others doing its work for it. Mm. Right? Although there's a little bit of implication that the town has made some kind of deal with the devil, right? Like that chosen to ignore yeah in order to like exist but um with randall flag and with it like or uh talk it can only achieve its evil if people cooperate with it yeah and, and i like i like the corrupting power of tack too how the bodies just start to rot it's just like this power is so heinous and evil but also powerful that any vessel that is holding it it's just like deteriorating you know i like the organs falling off i always think of like trash can man when he delivers the bomb back to oh, yeah, vegas yeah. Mm-hmm. where he's just like taking his goggles off and they're like melted onto his face um so that was one thing from the miniseries that i did enjoy was watching the sort of corruption of ron perlman over time <laughs> the overlook is another example i just realized of can only express itself if people cooperate and yeah and i think the idea i think that's another thing that king loves about using magical children is that um the idea that children are the ones who who are kind of taking down these these ancient evils uh that's not something they're expecting they think they're stronger than that and that to me is uh is a fun thing about this um any other thoughts on characters is there any other minor characters that perhaps you like that you feel like deserve a shout out um uh, There's a non-magical black man. Yes, there is, which is nice. He's just, he's just a normal guy. It's nice to see that. <laughs> we don't always get that. Um, yeah, I remember as a kid always just feeling really bad for Ralph Carver um, because he just yeah. seems like a like a like a nice man who <laughs> kind of gets oh, drawn like into hell. Oh yeah, like Tom vet. Billingsley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, uh, Another yes. kind of familiar face. I was going to say, speaking of speaking of mm-hmm. alcoholics, like yeah. even Johnny is worried about him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I always felt bad for Ralph because I feel like he just kind of has such an unceremonious end after being just just trying to be like a nice dad throughout the whole thing. I feel like that with Ellen, you know. Yeah, like she's, absolutely. You know, oh, my heart goes out to her. I mean, the hell, yeah, the hell she goes through is just horrifying. Yeah, yeah that was actually one of the I feel like one of the scariest moments of the book for me because I don't I didn't write this in Cemetery, which is why I'm saying it now. I just remembered it was the like when she's in the back of the car and Collie's driving her out to the mine and just the way that like they're going up the hill and then it kind of they just go down into darkness and then that's yeah. the end of the chapter and the last time we see her as a human really horrifying um cool uh let's pop on over to our next section which we call misery she she died she just slipped away slipped away slipped away she didn't just slip away you did it you did it 
Here in Misery, we talk about the stuff that made us miserable. Uh, we love you, Stephen King, but sometimes <laughs> uh, your work makes us scream a little bit. Um, I'm sure we all have, this is one of those books that for as weird and fun as it is, there's just a lot of really WTF kind of moments going on here. Uh, does anyone want to kick us off with a bit of misery? I alluded to it before, so I'll start. Um, when the spiders spell out stuff, <laughs> like... I know we're already in a, a realm of, of, you know, fantastical and we're suspending disbelief, but for some reason I was just like, really? I know. Like, that's how you're going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> like, you, don't, you don't like Charlotte's Web? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't well, want Charlotte's Web in my horror novel. It's just like, so he can communicate telepathically with all these other animals, but not spiders. Mm-hmm. Like, why not? Yeah. Like, if you're going to have him communicate telepathically with all these other, like, why make them spell? Like, yeah, it just seems also, it just seems also, how would they spell? <laughs> like, how can they, what is it that spiders can do that they cannot communicate telepathically, but they can have complex enough ideas to spell out words mm-hmm. in English and working yeah. together Which, too, you know, I, I mean, it's just, I don't, I know. And then the other thing is the destruction of the town. This happens. This is a stand problem for me too, which is that everything must've happened at once. Like all these different killings. Did, did no one have time to get away? Like there's this, you know, the really graphic picture of what happens in the town office. I'm like, it takes some time to ram like a pole through somebody. <laughs> like <laughs> would no one, would everyone just be frozen in fear or something? And then um, um, this is sort of pound cake, but I'll put it here, which is um, when uh, Mary is thinking about um, how Kali might rape her. Mm. It, it's bad. That's bad. Yeah. And then he also, he, she, he, I just don't think women think, I mean, I just don't, when I have fears about this, I don't go into this graphic detail about myself. Right. Absolutely. I had a, a one that's similar um, and it is when Kali is threatening to make uh, Johnny fillet him. Um, and the line that I pulled was, um, hold on, it's on page 161. Um, it didn't have anything to do with what the cop had taken out of his pants. And that might be what the guy didn't understand. It wasn't a sex issue. The thing was Johnny Marinville had never liked anything stuck in his face. And I was like, nobody does. And that's implying that people <laughs> that do do not want to be forced to give oral sex have a problem with sex and that's why and it was just this underlying implication that i found really off-putting there's also especially gay sex right exactly. like, i mean yeah you must just have a it's just that you don't like things near your face or something it's like no no people don't know there's also the mention of um ellen i think it's ellen having a yeast infection um when like blood as it spoke this is on page 313 as it spoke ellen's nose began to trickle blood it felt the blood wiped it away blisters had begun to rise on ellen's cheek and neck fucking yeast infection nothing more than that at least to start with why was it some women simply could not take care of themselves and look i'm a woman and i don't know what the fuck he's talking about there like i don't know how that is just like you could make a yeast infection really gross and that's actually what i was worried about Mm -hmm. you could make a a metastasizing yeast infection Mm -hmm super gross if you wanted to because they're gross just on their own mm-hmm. to make it like yeah he doesn't does he not know what it is right does exactly just think it's like should have yeah. run that one by tabby uh-huh yeah 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 so i bet she read it and she's like steve what the fuck is this i know and he's like no 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 <laughs> I, i'm on to something because <laughs> if he had leaned into that that could have been 
like Ugh. pretty trippy yep. with, with him too just in that scene too um so the quote is uh, and this is a little bit of pound cake but the cop was bleeding from every orifice and he says speaking in the literature sense the cop said grinning this particular blowjob is gonna be a little more Anne rice than armistead maupin <laughs> so it's like you know vampire blood i get it but armistead maupin is a kind of a famous gay writer san francisco in the 70s and i'm like this cop is really well read um <laughs> that just seems like stephen king flexing his own literary knowledge like i could see if johnny said that being an yeah. author but i'm like yeah. wow this this Desert Cop is amazingly well read. And if it's not Kali, like, is it Tack? Like, does, is Tack caught up on all the literary? Uh, you he's know, a lot of Anne Rice. Yeah. Maybe he's got a yeah, candle. He has down a lot there. of time on his hands. <laughs> he does. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, he's got Wi-Fi. He can pull stuff up. Yeah. Uh, he possesses and, well, people to bring back paperbacks to his yeah. little ca- cave. You know, he stays up on the pop culture. And the other thing yeah. I didn't like really was, I guess, the the Chinese mining. Um, yeah. th- there's like a lot of very interesting stories about the West being developed. Mm-hmm. Um, in that period of time, you know, the railroads, the mines, and like mines are one of the worst environments you could ever put a human in. Like they're so miserable mm-hmm. and dangerous. And I actually think I would have liked if the second half of the novel really got more into what really went down there. You know, we get like 30 pages or so kind of explaining what went down, but I would have actually liked to see more, not just the people hearing what's going on in the mine, but what was actually going on in the mine from some of those characters. I think that might've been a little more interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think he he missed an opportunity there to just go with like a popular culture understanding of this horrible exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like the whole, like they ran a laundry and I believe there's like some Chinese accent, you know, stuff yeah. that's really gross. And it, also to me, there's some kind of implicit racism in how thoroughly he explains the mining operation from the surface and the modern mining operation. Right. Cause you know, it is really, he gets really into it. And I found myself like Wikipediaing like what these mines look like. And they do look really scary. I don't know if you guys looked up pictures yeah, of them, yeah. but, um, but then with the Chinese miners, he just seems to be going off of like pop culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so why not show some interest in that experience? Right. Like, yeah, it, it, it's you know. the way that it's presented he, too, you know? Yeah, because mm-hmm. I mean, I did a project earlier last year about the Transcontinental Railroad and development of it, and they kind of dovetailed with what a lot of a lot of what he was saying. But it's just like a it's a very like tokenist kind of explanation of this thing, other than really trying to understand what those characters were actually experiencing. Yeah, and I and I know Randall's a fan of Deadwood on HBO yeah. as well, and there's Chinese characters in the camp, and they do a much better job. And it starts out where you're like, oh, this is kind of the cliche portrayal but over time they start to kind of flesh them out as characters so i think mm-hmm. once you see that that it can be done and then you see it here where it's not attempted yeah it's a yeah. little disappointing yeah it just feels like opening like a really i don't know it's like really complicated stuff and kind of just throwing out the most um i don't know like just using it as sort of a vessel to do this other story but in doing so you're kind of negating what you know the real experience was yeah like he could have done that whole thing just using white people mm-hmm. uh-huh yep. like it could have been just a story of like maybe you know reg- white miners being forced into doing this and you wouldn't have lost there would be no problem with it except there wouldn't be chinese characters written in the mind right like you, you which which is a problem like I, it, you shouldn't be able to do that if you're writing about another culture yeah right yeah yeah for me i wrote down a lot of 
uh, awkward pop culture references, which I, I feel like we're starting to get to that point where King was perhaps losing touch of culture a little bit because <laughs> he made a lot of pop culture references in early work and most of them, you know, for the most part work. And now we're sort of hitting this point where he's getting a little bit older and uh, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I just read the Institute and there's like references to like Rihanna and stuff in there. And it's just rough because mm -hmm. you can just hear him like asking his kids about or his grandkids. <laughs> his He's grandkids, like, what are you yeah. what are you listening to? You know, um, but yeah, just a couple here. Uh, he turned sideways, then propped his whole weight on one arm like Jack Palance doing push-ups at the Academy Awards. Oh, God. <laughs> I missed oh, that part. <laughs> um, a monster... Oh, wait. That one's bad, but I'll skip that for now. Let's see, David said. He was looking up at the screen as, as expectantly as a kid waiting for the start of the newest Ace Ventura movie. So, When Nature Calls. He's referencing... Yeah, because there was only two. <laughs> yeah, so, a kid aw. eagerly awaiting When Nature Calls. He's really thinking uh, that franchise is going to take off, huh? <laughs> I know. Yeah. so funny. Um, uh, a monstrous bolt of pain shot through his head from back to front and for a moment he felt his eyes were literally bugging out like those of a cartoon Romeo who has just spotted a dishy blonde that line could have used uh, an editor oh, yep. um, and then uh, this just drove me crazy because um, I mean it's I'm, I, it's like he's, he's using real pop culture references elsewhere but here he uses a fake one uh, Mrs. Ross had stopped struggling now. Mr. Ross's hands had ended up locked together just below her breasts, and her head was bent so her hair hung in her face. The way they looked made David think of the World Wrestling or World Federation wrestling matches he and Bry had also sometimes watched, and how sometimes one guy would hug another guy like that. And I'm just like, a, that's awkward writing, and B, World Federation Wrestling is not a thing. Mm. Um, so it's World Wrestling Federation, isn't it? <laughs> It's funny because like when I remember I got in trouble in elementary school, junior high, junior high once and arguing with a teacher about whether or not Stephen King was literature. Oh, interesting. And um, uh, her argument was almost entirely based on the fact that he made pop culture references. Mm. Oh, like, yeah. Th that was like not literature. Like John Updike doesn't do that or something, you know? Oh, boy. Um, yeah. And so I am always very attentive to those and when they work and don't work and the ones that you cited don't work. But when he mentions rattle and hum. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, all right. You know, this is very specific. This places it for me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, those are the ones that you said it are. Um, yeah. This is uh, just just a, a word I, I hate that has been introduced into my eyeballs. Steve swung it by its tail like a lunatic Tom Sawyer, then let it fly. It zoomed across the garage, a rat steroid, and <laughs> smacked into the wall beyond the desert rover. It was a rat, by the way. A mm. rat steroid. Come on, King. Like the you've got so much beautiful writing in here. And then we get editors, asteroids. editors. Yeah. Right. You know? mm. So, yeah. Um, and then I just hate, I hate it when, and I've talked about this in the pod before, but I hate it when his uh, like demons or monsters get like cheeky um, mm -hmm. or, and then, so I hated Kali's singing, leaving on a jet plane. Um, I had that. Cause that's just corny. Like, come on, like make this a scary character, please. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. music can, yeah, it can be good in certain instances, but here I'm just like, it just doesn't work for me. And then similarly, uh, when Brad Josephson um, uh, asks Carrie Ripton in the flashback, he says, he says, how did you get so tall? Wheaties, it exclaims, tack. And I'm just like, is tack going to make a Wheaties reference? Mm. Like, come on man i just don't like wise cracking monsters <laughs> like it's just never never works well for me so tack has a kindle and cable <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 
I well, similarly, not the villain, but I had the I hate critics line on my yep. list because I yep. just like ugh, this is like this big triumphant moment. And then you're adding your little like hasta la vista baby moment in which side note, that's amazing. But this is like <laughs> trying to recreate it. And I just mm. and I yeah. also had the whole thing with the fishes and loaves and the saltines and the I was like, OK, I see. Yes. Yes. We're talking about Christianity. I get it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> calm down. I know moments like that. I just wish it wasn't so explicitly Christian, you know, like, um, like it's not a bad concept. I don't know, but it it does point to what, uh, Dan, you were saying earlier, just about so much evidence for their like proof for their being God is like literally the sardines and crackers, like just, uh, magically refilling and everybody getting some and, uh, it's like the loaves of bread and the fish for Jesus, you know, one of the miracles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I will say that sardines and Ritz are delicious. Yes. That is a (laughs) very good combination. Sardines. Uh, if you make homemade pasta sauce, add sardines. Wow, really mm-hmm. picks it up. Uh, anchovies, no, anchovies, I think with the yeah. pasta, you, I have, anchovies are the way I, to go. I have both, but I alternate. But nice. cooking tips with the Losers Club. <laughs> we should do a spinoff podcast. It's all <laughs> yeah. Stephen King, King and book. food. You could do a spinoff podcast that would be Stephen King and food. Oh, we'd have to call it the Pound Cake Chronicles down. or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do remember uh, when I was reading Laura Ingalls Wilder in elementary school, like the food, uh, the way she wrote about food was always so evocative and made Mm -hmm. me so hungry. I loved it. Mm. Um, I have one thing here. Let me just find the. uh... Okay, yeah, I said I just wrote. um, Can you imagine a 10 year old saying this? Okay, (laughs) if you leave now, tack will be waiting for you in a lot of places. Not just Austin, hotel rooms, speaking halls, fancy lunches where people talk about books and things. When you're with a woman, it'll be you who undresses her and Tack who has sex with her. And the worst thing is that you may live like that for a long time. Candelac is what you'll be, heart of the unformed. Me him, canini, the empty well of the eye. And I'm like, that is a 10 year old <laughs> child. I just, it's very It started to me. just spiral. Cause at first I was like, okay, okay. He's yeah. mature. And then it was like the well of the eye. Yeah. I know I was just cracking up, but it reminded me of the end of the, the stand, the CBS all access version when Odessa Young had to deliver those lines about like the circle closes, like and right. everything. And I'm, and like, we talk about that in the episode, just about how, you know, those lines probably look cool on the page, but you put them in an actor's mouth and it's just not quite the same. Yeah. Uh, so cool. All right. Uh, any other miseries before we, we talk about some of the, the happier times in this book. Like my children of the desert. I throw in. <laughs> that line cracked me up. <laughs> Love it. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
what we've got here is failure to communicate. Nine times. Mr. Brown. Mr. White. You know, for kids. Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blue. Mr. Orange. Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? I see dead people. 1.21 gigawatts. Their obsession. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. No, I'm just getting warmed up. Their words. I'll ask you again. Did I urinate on your rug? I drink your milkshake. Someone else's movie. I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god, not the god. Directors, screenwriters, actors, and film fanatics record feature-length audio commentaries for the films that changed their life. I want you to get up now. How come Andrew gets to get up? That's right. If he gets up, we'll all get up. It'll be anarchy. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. That's the sidetrack. Do you think you're out of tune? (laughs) Yeah, let's pop over to a little section we call Word Processor of the Gods. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Here we talk about uh, actually the good writing, the stuff we actually liked. Uh, We've shut ourselves. We've expunged ourselves of the misery. And now it is time to discuss um, some of the more beautiful writing. Um, Does anybody have anything right off the bat? Otherwise, I got one. Oh, I have my list. Oh, bring it. So um, some of them are just single lines, which is really good. Um, uh, This is from the David section. The day's simple, unzipped loveliness stunned him. And for a moment, he was very aware of himself as part of something whole, the cell and living skin of the world. Sort of goes back to the dust moat idea. But the simple, unzipped loveliness, just that is really, really good to me. Yeah, that's beautiful. This is from the scene in the the movie theater. Billingsley, I believe, is reminiscing. So uh, Billingsley and his friends knew as well. That's why they came here. It's about watching movies in a movie theater. God made you to hear that sound in a room like this is a natural amplifier for it. You can hear it even better when you sit in front of the screen with your old pals throwing legendary shadows and drinking to the past. That sound says quitting is okay, that quitting is in fact the only choice that makes any sense. The sound is about the lure of emptiness and the pleasures of zero. Hmm. Which I guess is actually about drinking, not about movie theaters, but um, But the writing's good. The writing's good. Oh, and then this is about the act of writing, sort of. Yeah. Where um, uh, Johnny is um, talking, doing his talk to David. Um, he's lying to David. Yet he felt like a lot. Yet this felt like a lie to his heart. He found himself filling up with a vague, fluttery nervousness. It was the way he felt in the last few days before beginning a new book, when he understood the inevitable could not be put off much longer, that he would soon be out on the wire again, clutching his balance pole and riding his stupid little unicycle. Hmm. I feel like that when I write all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Same. Like, is this going to work? I mean, I've done this, I've done this a thousand times, but. Every time you sit down, it's starting from scratch again. Yep. It feels like. Uh, Anybody else got any? Jen? 
Yeah, I have a couple. A lot of them, I think the things that really affected me in this book, um, aside from what I've already talked about, were the like the depictions of people dying and people grieving. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the first one that I pulled was um, when Peter dies. And I just was fascinated by the way he wrote this. And it's on page um, 32. He pulled the trigger at least three times. There might have been more, but three reports were all Peter Jackson heard. They were muffled by his stomach, but still very loud. An incredible heat shot up through his chest and down through his legs at the same time, and he heard something wet drop on his shoes. He heard Mary still screaming, but the sound seemed to come from far, far away. Now I'll wake up in my bed, Peter thought it as knees buckled, and the world began to draw away, as bright as afternoon sunlight on the chrome side of a receding railroad car. Now I'll... That was all. His last thought as the darkness swallowed him forever really wasn't a thought at all, but an image. The bear on the dashboard next to the cop's compass, head jiggling, painted eyes staring. The eyes turned into holes. The dark rushed out of them, and then he was gone. And I just, that really haunted me. Just like the, the like life just draining out, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the cadence of the text kind of lends itself to that, you yeah. know, that sensation, which mm -hmm. is really cool. And I have a couple uh, more, but somebody else can if you want um i'll just toss one in um anna and jen actually got a couple that i was gonna do oh, um but oh no no it saves me the effort um one that stood out i believe it's johnny i had it written down somewhere but um he says this line that i think can apply to a lot of the horror in the stephen king universe which is most times it took a lot to kill a man people usually died hard that was the horror of it and i think that's a pretty cool line of just the yeah. idea of like it's really not easy to kill someone and it's such a drawn out process of suffering and then fighting back and i think mm -hmm. i don't know i just thought that was a cool line yeah that reminds me of a glitch in the matrix randall yeah the, absolutely the kid who decides to to real life matrix his parents mm -hmm. and has a moment where he's like oh mom's not dying the way yep. people die in the movies yeah oh, gosh it's extremely dark i got to check that out yeah, I it's know. a good movie. It's from the guy speak uh, King's Dominion, who made Room Two Three Seven, Rodney Asher. Oh, so, yeah. So uh, same filmmaker. Um, yeah, I have one here, page ninety nine. It's it's. Does it's, this count as King's Dominion? So if we <laughs> reference the guy that made, yeah, <laughs> it does. Oh, wait, does it count as Room Two? Does it count as Room Two Three Seven if we reference the guy that <laughs> made Two Three Seven in the King podcast? <laughs> Let's say King's Dominion is a very large place. Uh, we make room for everybody. Um, I just love this line on page ninety nine, uh, and I, I see this line quoted from this book a lot because I think it's just kind of, um, I think it's just kind of like a badass line that. That also made me laugh. Um, you have never written a truly spiritual novel, the cop told him. He spoke slowly, enunciating each word with care. It is your great unrecognized failing, and it is at the center of your petulant, self-indulgent behavior. You have no interest in your spiritual nature. You mock the God who created you, and by doing so, you mortify your own pneuma and glorify the mud, which is your sarks. Do you understand me? Like, I just love that line. And especially, I love it coming from this, like, massive like terrifying cop uh it just cracks me up so it's um yeah that's just like a line that i immediately highlighted and it, it makes me laugh so and also i think it's just a fun indictment of johnny um who is this you know douche so <laughs> um any other uh miseries or i'm sorry word processors that you want to share I think that whole part with Kali and um, Johnny, when he fools him into thinking he's a fan, like there's not particularly word processor of the gods, mm -hmm. but it is a fun, if you're going to cite that one, it is a kind of a fun indictment of, a, again, 
ego is the downfall in King's books, right? Pride is the downfall. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Jen, what else do you got? Um, well, I have a longer one that I'm not going to read, but it's kind of what we were talking about earlier when Ellen is in the car and she's being driven into the mines and, um, it's before she's driven into the darkness and her trying to work her mind around the fact that she, as a person who might have been running for PTA and like picks her clothes out of this catalog, like this person could also be the person who is about to die. And I just loved kind of the way he was she was working her brain through that and like that dichotomy of how can I be alive but also in this state of desperation I guess to say and then I also there's a on page 543 when David is talking about um grieving he said there were holes in him that cried out in pain and would go on crying for so much of the future one for his mother one for his father one for his sister holes like faces holes like eyes which just really hit me yeah Um, And then I also had God is cruel, but his cruelty is refining. And given everything I said about it earlier, like that line is just so memorable. And I really enjoy piecing it apart. And then I have in these silences, something may rise, which I just thought Mm. so you could read it as a threat, but you could also read it as something beautiful, which I think is just just love, love that line. I got another one. Disbelief. This is David. Disbelief filled him at the idea, buds of wonder, which were only grief rolled tight. Mm, Yeah, I love that. Um, This isn't really word processor, but weirdly, from the first time I read it when I was a kid, there is an image that always stuck with me. And it, it, and it worked for me again on this one. And it's when the cougar attacks and it jumps on Steve and its claws dig into him and it forms blood blossoms. That was like the first time I ever heard that phrase. And it's in regulators too, but just the concept of like claws digging in through your clothes and like piercing the skin and like blood blossoming around the claws. That was an image to me that was so evocative when I was a kid and I first read that. And I don't know when I, when I hit it again, I'm just like, I remembered it. I was like leading up to it. And for some reason as a kid, like that was so evocative to me. So I don't know, not really WordPress there. Cause I wouldn't call it like necessarily great writing, but it's an image that has stuck with me throughout, you know, decades. So um, any other word processors we want to share before moving on to the cemetery. Cool. All right. Let's uh, crack open those rusty gates and walk into the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Welcome to the cemetery. This is where we talked about the stuff that freaked us out in this book. And thankfully, there's quite a bit because I feel like on the episodes you've been on, Anna, uh, we haven't had a lot of cemetery because it was Rose Matter and Dolores Claiborne, which aren't necessarily horror novels, although they are horrific at times. Here we've got a good honest to goodness horror novel. And uh, I'll kick it off with a line I think creeps out a lot of people. Um, And it's definitely one I saw pop up in a lot of uh, things I was reading online. Um, And it's after uh, Kali arrests them and he is reading them their rights. And he says, 
You have the right to remain silent, the big cop said in his robot's voice. If you do not choose to remain silent, anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. I'm going to kill you. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Do you understand your rights if I, as I have explained them to you? Just very chilling, the concept of, I mean, obviously there's already fear baked into, fear of violence baked into um, being arrested or anything along those lines, especially in today's culture. So um, I think just that, that, and then the idea that he's doing it in this robotic voice and saying it in a way that is consistent with everything else and the cadence of what he's saying. Very creepy line, always resonated with me. Something I remembered from my very first read. So yeah, that was, uh, that's the first one I'll throw out there. Any other cemetery lines anybody else wants to throw out? I want to say something about that, which yeah. I'd had to, but I wonder if people of color have that line is especially frightening to them, or if maybe that is just like that line just might be especially frightening to white people is what I'm saying. Oh, sure. Well, well, yeah. What's interesting is my uh, constitutional law professor actually argued that case, which was Miranda versus Arizona in the late sixties. Um, mm. So on the very first day, you know, he just read it from memory. So you just get so used to hearing that phrase over and over again. So I even love that he's reading it in a robot voice, right? It's just wrote, but that I'm going to kill you slipping in. You're like, wait, what was I tuned mm -hmm. out? And that really jumped out to me as very scary. Yeah. The one that um, I pulled a little earlier is when he's looking at his license and he says, I see you're an organ donor. The cop said without looking up, do you really think that's wise? And just like the ominousness of that. And this person in a position of authority also where you can't really question. And I feel like there's a safety and procedures that we assume, especially as white people that he's just kind of, dismantling like phrase by phrase you know yeah 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 like randomness uh not randomness necessarily but like peppering in these ominous lines in these otherwise rote sort of discussions or questions is really eerie there's another one when he pulls over johnny on page 77 of mine um he says why do you re why do you realize uh what the ratio of drivers to accidents on motorcycles is computed on a road hours basis i can tell you that because i'm a wolf and we get a circular every month from the national safety council it's one accident per 460 drivers per day and uh that's just it he just says i'm a wolf in the middle of this sentence and that to me is i don't know just genuinely really eerie like just mm -hmm. dropping that and especially like and it becomes you know i think freakier once you get a handle on who attack is and his connection to the animals but just to say i'm a wolf in the middle of that always got under my skin just to add to that too so there's several references to him being a wolf um because johnny says oh mr policeman what big teeth you have um yeah yeah it's like yeah i can tell you because i'm a wolf and that actually goes back to wolf and sheep's clothing from the bible from matthew 7 15 yeah Fun. And at the end, yeah, when Tack dissipates in the air, uh, the cloud that's left behind is a wolf as well. So uh, very freaky. Um, Anna, any cemetery you want to share? You know, I, we, I mean, I, I do think that that first part of the book is the scariest mm -hmm. in a way. Like it's obviously the least graphic and there's graphic stuff that I could pull up. But um, I've got some. The the part that I, I underlined was he understood that he and Mary were in the worst trouble of their lives, but he was unable to comprehend this in any real and meaningful way. It's, it sort of compares to the Ellen having to think I'm, that I'm in the PTA and I'm about to be killed by a supernatural monster. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think this is a thing that that's, this is why people love Stephen King to a certain degree is that he's able to make it seem very, he's able to take, real people 
and make you believe that they're in these fantastical situations, that they are not like just cut out, cut out cardboard and that they react to these situations the way that you might. And one of the ways that I think a real human being would react to the situation is just incomprehension. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's like when I read was reading this, like my mind didn't want to go there. And I think I, you see the characters going through that too. Yeah, I think, I think uh, when Johnny's pulled over to take a leak off his motorcycle and then he comes back and drugs have been planted on his motorcycle, that's always been a very scary thing for me is being framed. Um, you know, it's nothing supernatural about it, but what do you do when a cop in a desert claims that you have drugs? There's no body cams, right? It's his word versus yours. Yeah, and I think that's very stressful. I think that's one, yeah, like that non supernatural aspect by couching it in a very scary looking cop. Like he does achieve sort of, I don't know, a dual edge kind of horror where there is the supernatural. Uh, aspect to it but also just even if there was nothing supernatural about this it would be horrifying just the way he's speaking to you um i guess uh i have a lot of the um i don't know the really gory parts uh done because i don't know king talks when we read we did dance macabre he talks a lot about in that about how these various kinds of horror and he calls revulsion like the least uh you know kind of artful i think kind of horror but man does he indulge in it here and he loves it you know he loves to dip into that well a little bit but some of it to me is just so revolting that i had physical reactions to it um like on page 100 his voice had thickened and now he was hitching in breath trying to talk as a person does only when trying to finish his thought before the sneeze arrives he abruptly dropped the shotgun onto the seat again gasped in a deep breath uh and let fly what came out of his mouth and nose was not mucus but blood and red filmy stuff that looked like nylon mesh this stuff raw tissue from the big cop's throat and sinuses hit the windshield the steering wheel the dashboard the smell was awful the smell of rotted meat it just sounds like mm. hell mm-hmm. <laughs> just this cop car covered in absolute gore and then similarly um uh, the scene when he runs down uh, Billy Rancourt in town, there's a lot of really gnarly descriptions of of uh, Kali, but this one got me in particular. Um, the cop's mouth had the sunken, infirm look of lips with no teeth to back them up, and blood ran from the corners in little streams. One of his eyes was a cauldron of gore, except for an occasional gray flash from its swimming depths. It could have been a plucked socket. A shiny mat of blood covered the top half of his khaki shirt. But just cauldron of gore is to me like just comically gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is a really gross book in a lot of ways. And I think my cemeteries kind of came down into two categories. And one was that the thought of having talk inside my body and like tearing it apart in all of these really unique and really gross and gory ways. Um, And this was one where I had a hard time deciding if it should be pound cake or cemetery, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, But I have on page 289, it raised Ellen Carver's hands and began tapping Ellen Carver's fingers meditatively against Ellen Carver's collarbone. And it's just so haunting the way, like, to think that those those fingers and those body parts aren't hers anymore. They are belonging to talk. And then this one, like, particularly devastated me when it's still Ellen 
Um, it carried the coyote across the green bundle on the floor, knelt and pulled the drape open. And she's talking about seeing the body of pie. It looked down with a silent snarling mouth at the dead girl who had grown inside this present body. And just the idea that Ellen might see that and still like have this kind of desecration to her child happening. And it just, mm, yeah. me out. Yeah. A lot of that pie stuff is really, really scary and sad at the same time. Well, that's time, my you know? other category is Pi's death and then when uh, David finds Pi's body. And I don't even really want to read that because it's yeah, so it's upsetting. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And then um, one thing that always freaks me out is creepy answering machine messages or like creepy people over the phone that's always been creepy to me and so i really liked it when um uh steve and cynthia were in the mining office and um yeah they play what's on the answering machine there was a beep a click then a strange voice it seemed to be neither male nor female and it scared the hell out of steve began to speak numa it said in a contemplative voice soma sarks numa soma sarks numa Soma Sarks. It went on slowly enunciating these words, seeming to grow louder as it spoke. Was that possible? He stared at the machine, fascinated, the words hitting into his brain. Soma Sarks Numa, like tiny sharp carpet tacks. He might have gone on staring at it for God knew how long if Cynthia hadn't reached past him and banged the stop button hard enough to make the machine jump on the desk. Um, and it scares me too, I think, in this book, uh, how often like these characters almost fall into hypnosis or they fall under the influence of whatever it is that's sort of surfacing and they have to pull themselves out of it. That to me is also something that kind of freaks me out. Just the idea of being in a way mesmerized by uh, some kind of, um, I don't know, some kind of evil chant or evil image or something like that. Like being able to pull your, 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 your senses away from it. That's just very creepy to me. Uh, Dan, any other cemeteries for you? Uh, I think you guys got most of them. It's just, again, the, the images of people rotting away. I, I just love that uh, imagery. It's so gross with blood pouring out of every orifice and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, There's another one. I don't know. Do you guys remember the scene when they walk in on the family that had been eating its meal and there's like snakes everywhere? Um, that scene to me was absolutely horrific. Um, I'll just read a little bit of it. It was the dining room. The family had been about to eat what looked like the evening meal, although not this evening's meal. She saw that right away. There were flies buzzing over the pot roast, and some of the slices were already supporting colonies of maggots. The cream corn had congealed in its bowl. The gravy was a greasy clot in its boat. Three people were seated at the table, a man, a, wo a woman, a man, and a baby in a high chair. The woman was still wearing the full-length apron in which she cooked the meal. The baby wore a big which, bib which read, I'm a big boy now. He was slumped sideways behind his tray, on which were several stiff-looking orange slices. He regarded Cynthia with a frozen grin. And it gets a lot nastier from there, but I'll stop there because it's pretty disturbing. But yeah, those scenes to me were, um, you can tell King is sort of, I feel like because he'd been writing these books that weren't straight horror for so long that he seems to be relishing like these moments of revulsion, like really digging into uh, human viscera, guts, gore, the collapse of human bodies, rotted bodies, things of that nature. And it's, I don't know, there's something kind of, um, you know, weirdly thrilling about it, but also, you know, something very disturbing. Um, yeah. Uh, any adds. Yeah, go ahead. I want to add something here because I'm not sure where else it would go. But, um, you know, I think King is, y'all have acknowledged and 
true. He's kind of ham-fisted in his liberalism sometimes. Oh, yeah. Um, but his depiction of the mining operation as the strip mining operation and the way that it works, um, he goes into graphic detail too. And, and, and it, it, I sort of mentioned it in contrast to the Chinese miners thing where he doesn't use much detail at all. But like, I think he wants us to see that mine as a scary, literally scary place, you know, like not um, in a supernatural way, but mm-hmm. like, you know, and it, although there is the nice place, it's not exactly long enough or, or profound enough to put in word processor of the gods. But, but like when the uh, when the the character that turns out to be Johnny Marinville is describing the way the mind works to David, and he says, yeah. "Do you see those holes?" And David says, "They look like eyes." Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's when actually I, I wound up doing a, a Wikipedia rabbit hole about what those minds are like and and what they do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. King worked with, um, he thanks him in the foreword here, but he worked with like a mining expert. Um, yeah. Rich Hasler of the Magma Mining Corporation, um, which I thought was, uh, which I thought was interesting. And yeah, I wonder if like that line came from speaking to that person or any tours that he might've did of various mines. Like he clearly did the research in, in regards to, you know, what those mines, like how they operate and what they're built of. And, and I can imagine like the holes like eyes thing, maybe he was flying a helicopter over one and saw that, that, that was something that really resonated with me. Um, in terms of revulsion, I have one more I'm going to read only because it's just, I feel like Audrey's collapse, like her, you know, uh, melting if you want to call it that goes on for like pages Mm -hmm. (laughs) it goes on for so long um and i'm gonna read a little bit of it just a little bit audrey staggered toward them and away from the pitted gray stones steve could smell a rich odor of blood and decay he reached out but couldn't bring himself to actually put a restraining hand on her shoulder even though she was headed for the stairs in the hallway headed in the direction ralph had taken his boy he couldn't bring himself to do it because he knew his fingers would sink in Now he could hear a plopping, pattering sound as parts of her began to liquefy and fall off in a kind of flesh rain. She mounted the steps and lurched out through the door. Cynthia looked up at Steve for a moment, her face pinched and white. He put his arm around her waist and followed Johnny up the stairs. Audrey made it about halfway down the short but steep flight of stairs leading to the second floor hall, then fell. The sound of her inside her blood-soaked dress was grisly, a splashing sound almost. And I'll stop there. Because the splashing was what I remember from when I was a kid. Like, the idea that she was liquefying was so horrifying to me. And I think I remember trying to tell my parents about it at the time. And they were just like, why are you telling us this? We do not want to know about what you're reading. (laughs) (laughs) Body horror is my big, like, genre that really, really scares me. I do not like it. Um, It's probably some psychological reasons for that. But it's just – and this one, it's just relentless. It's like body horror and children dying. Um, Because I had – I think my mind had scanned over the baby in the high chair thing because I don't remember reading that. Um, Uh And what – because there's also the moment where he finds everyone on the coat hooks, you know, which is so horrific. And I pulled apart about Audrey – that I think kind of represents how I feel about reading this book. And I'm, I don't think it's bad that it's scary. It's just, it's harsh. And it's like the two kinds of scary that mm-hmm. really get under my skin. But it's when Kali is looking for Audrey and she's hiding. Um, 
and she's telling the story. She says, I didn't say anything, just curled up there in my knee hole with my arms wrapped around my head. He goes, why don't you come out? If you come out, I'll make it quick. If I have to find you, I'll make it slow. And I wanted to come out. That's how much he'd gotten to me, how much he'd scared me. I believed he knew for sure that I was still in there somewhere and that he was going to follow the smell of my perfume to me like a bloodhound. And I wanted to get out from under the desk and go to him so he'd kill me quick. And I feel like it, that's on page like 325. And once you get there, you've read so much like horrific stuff that there's part of me that's like I, I just can't do this anymore you know which is yeah. when my mind tends to like zone out and I just need to listen to something else for a little bit yeah my um my wife wants me to get into audiobooks because I take a lot of walks you know and uh -huh. um and and I because sometimes I just say I'll be up like so late reading and she's like you should just like listen to audiobooks but it's like never been a thing I've done and I don't know I, I'm thinking it might be a, a good thing to get into um them. yeah um cool uh, I think it's time to move on to our next section. We walked around the cemetery. We built up a bit of an appetite. So we're going to munch on some pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. Welcome to Pound Cake. This is where we discuss the moments, the blue moments, the moments that made us blush a little bit and perhaps laugh as well. Um, there's probably a good chunk to talk to here, uh, but does anybody have any right off the bat they want to share? Uh, I'll do one of uh, Johnny peeing in the desert, which I thought was funny. So when he pulls over his motorcycle, um, he talks about removing, putting his dry dick in his hand. And as he starts <laughs> peeing, he says... Praise Jesus. Thank you, Lord. He bellowed in his rolling, trembling Jimmy Swagger voice. It was a great success at cocktail parties. Tom Wolfe had once laughed so hard that he was doing the evangelist, vo evangelist voice that Johnny thought was a man going to have a stroke. Water in the desert. That's a big 10 for hallelujah. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. <laughs> Uh, I'm, still, king dialogue. I'm still below 40 as a young man, so my prostate has not enlarged tremendously. <laughs> but I know that my friends who are older, they're like, yeah, it gets harder to pee. You really have to concentrate as you become an older guy. So I think it's just funny <laughs> to think of King going through some of this as Johnny's going through it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, lots of lots of uh, boob discussion here. Uh, obviously, we mentioned the stuff with Cynthia, but you know, and he mentions it multiple times, especially with Cynthia, uh, various comments about her breasts. But um, this but there's also a lot of boner talk lest we we overlook that. So I'm going to read one here. On the assay side, if that's what it was, there was a line of Macintosh computers set up on a long table littered with tools and manuals. The Macs were running screensaver programs. One featured pretty multicolored helix shapes above the words gas chroma uh, uh, chromatograph ready. Another, surely not Disney sanctioned, showed Goofy pulling down his pants every seconds or so, uh, every seven seconds or so, revealing a large boner with the words yuck, yuck, yuck written on it. Uh, thank you, sir, uh, for that. And um, there was another one here that made me laugh in terms of uh... she was quivering in the circle of his arm. He could feel the softness of her breast just above his hand. And he wanted her. Her husband was hung up like a fucking overcoat right be behind them. But he was still getting a fairly respectable stiffy, especially for a man with possible prostate woes. Um, so, yeah, uh, love to talk about stiffies as a woman's dead husband is hanging right there. Um, uh, Jen, any pound cake for you? 
Yeah, I, I got kind of a lot. Some of it you already mentioned, but there's the moment, and I don't think I have this marked, but where he sees a, a dead woman sitting on the floor, and he's like, oh, I remember I got a head from somebody who was sitting in that position. And I know, I have that too. Weirdest line, um, but then I also have another boner line. Um, I think <laughs> <laughs> when he's thinking about Terry, um, he says on page 63, he dropped a hand into his lap and wasn't exactly surprised at what he found there. Say, folks, Frampton comes alive. it's funny like i find that stuff much more of a tell about discomfort than any of the humor that he has around um profundity Mm. you know like his jokes about his his very juvenile kind of like (laughs) different names for for a boner i mean i don't know like i've tried to write love scenes before so i identify with the limited range of things you can call a penis that isn't the word penis but also isn't like from junior high yeah (laughs) um (laughs) he doesn't have that problem well he just he barrels right through it is what i would say (laughs) and then he uses the terms from junior high um and to me like that's a much more like distracting to me that is reminiscent of the thing that that guy was trying to say about religion yeah it is much more bothersome to me it's like when he like is, does the fucking Frampton comes alive or whatever. Like, I think that could be a funny scene without Frampton comes alive being a line in there. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah. um, uh, near the end of the book, like literally, you know, as Johnny is descending to tax layer, the brownish black muck twisted toward him, both horrible and enticing holes that were mouths, mouths that were eyes, eyes that whispered promised He realized he had an erection. Not exactly a great time for one, but when had that ever stopped him? And I just wrote in my notes, must he be horny? (laughs) Like, as we're in the climax, we're in, like, the home stretch. This, like, horrifying shit is happening, and he has to be horny at this moment. Um, That cracked me up. Or you could make it part of, like, what's happening, right? Like, you could make it horrific for him. Yeah. That he has an erection. (laughs) That he's like, oh, shit, like, this this is this magic working on me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like, kind of like, like, hey, look at that. Yeah. Getting <laughs> in the way. <laughs> I can't run now. Shoot. Do I have time? Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> There's, can I do one? Um, it's not yeah. necessarily, it's more about, I guess, a hygienic one. Uh, but to me, this is very zeitgeisty from the 90s. So uh, Edrigan says, no God in France either, trooper. Take it from moi. Just Chisano, Escargot, and women who don't shave their armpits. <laughs> and for some reason in the 90s, French women not shaving their armpits was like this popular joke or mm-hmm. punchline. Like, not in the yeah. winter. <laughs> in Home Alone. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Like, it, But it was just, I don't really hear that joke. But in the 90s, it was always like that. Anytime you mentioned France, it was like, they don't shave their armpits. And now I think <laughs> no one really cares. But yeah. it just seemed like it was on the tip of everyone's tongue at that time. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, I... This one is very king. He loves to talk about farts, especially in moments of violence. So when Carrie Ripton is killing Brad Josephson in the flashback, uh, this whole this whole uh, sentence is awful, but uh, or this whole paragraph. Uh, it feels a wonderful, intoxicating sense of rebirth. It is filled not only with strength and purpose of tack, but with the grease-fired energy of a man who eats four eggs and half a pound of limp bacon for breakfast. It feels... feels 
I feel great, Brad Josephson exclaims in a boisterous Tony the Tiger voice. It can hear a tenebrous creaking that is Brad's backbone growing, the taut silk across satin sound that is his muscles stretching, the thawing ice sound of his skull expanding. He breaks wind repeatedly, the sound like the reports of a track starter's gun. <laughs> just, I just, I, and I couldn't, you know, it's very grade school, but the mm-hmm. idea of these like rapid fire farts coming out of him as he is turning into a demon was just too too funny for me mm. um uh anna any pound cake for you um not really i think you guys have covered most of the stuff that i would say i mean there's blessedly little sex actually in this book um yeah uh, and I appreciate that Johnny just sort of has an attraction that he doesn't act on. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some stuff where there is a line that now I can't find um, where Intrigan, it's, it's the, it has to do with the uh, yeast infection issue mm-hmm. where he yeah. talks about her dripping cunt uh, <laughs> and rats being attracted to the blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a fun section. But I, I guess that's that should have been in the revulsion category, not pound cake. Or, is, or does stuff count in pound cake if it's revulsion that's not done very well? Uh, I think, honestly, the lines are blurry. It could be yeah. either way. Um, yeah. So, yeah. We like to keep our pound cake nice and uh, isolated. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of, I've, I cooked a pound cake yesterday. It was the very first cake I ever cooked. It was an orange olive oil pound cake. I made a pound cake. I want to make a cake. And I said, well, obviously, I need to make a pound cake in honor of the podcast. And uh, it turned out great. Uh, Tony the Tiger voice, great. So very proud of that. This is for um, the spinoff show, you know? Yes. It's yeah. a cooking channel. Cooking, yeah. with, King. cooking with Stevie. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, any others? Yeah, I actually found two that I am kind of dubbing Pound Cake Dominion. Because they are pound cake, but also relate to pound cake in other books. Um, And it is when, and it's, I talked about this a little earlier, but it's when um, Kali is wanting Johnny to give him head. And this is the downside to audiobooks because in Needful Things, I have this audio file in my head of Leland Gaunt yelling at, I think it's Cora, Cora yelling, mm-hmm. Filate me! And it just <laughs> reminded me of that, of like this person in authority just for whatever reason demanding a blowjob. And then I also had later on that page, this is page 161. Never mind how I'm looking at you. Just hear me out, motherfucker. Three seconds after I put that trouser rat of yours in my mouth, it's going to be lying on the pavement. You got that talk, which reminds me of Shawshank Redemption. Like anything yeah. you put in my mouth, you're going to lose. Which is like, ugh. And then um, also the sword in mud part with um, uh, Cynthia and um, Steve, which I like. I kind of like that's pound cake that I feel like kind of ties into the story. So I didn't really pull much of that, but. The sword and mud line. It's like, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. I wrote that down too, but then I was like, eh, actually, the writing's not horrible here. Yeah. Um, so cool. Uh, any other pound cake before we walk it off in a place called King's Dominion? All right, that sounds like it's time to head to King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Is. 
Welcome to King's Dominion. Here we discuss connections uh, with other books and films or whatever in the Stephen King universe. And we have a really big one kind of right off the bat. King doesn't do this too often, but he brought a character from Rose Matter, a supporting character, Cynthia Smith. She was in the Women's Shelter with Rose and the other characters in Rose Matter. Did you know that coming into this, Dan? Had you read Rose Matter? No, I'd actually not. That's one of the ones I'm catching up on. Um, but I saw it in like the trivia when I was searching. Oh, okay, it. cool. Yeah, she's a you know she's not a small character in Rose Matter. Um, so it was fun. I think King just probably liked her and figured, hey, why not bring her back? And uh, yeah, she kind of even she goes so far as to even offer kind of like a capsule description of of Rose Matter and mention some characters that we know from that book, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, I was happy to spend more time with Cynthia, so that was cool. Um, any others that you guys have straight up? I've got a whole handful here, but I um I'll just say something that's kind of a general thing that I just maybe y'all have commented on before, which is that he has some brand names that appear over and over and over. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> like Sam Brown belts. Like that is like something that all working class <laughs> men wear and Dandelux detergent. Ah. Table talk pies for some reason do not appear um, <laughs> in this where they do and everything else. Um, there's also a mention of Arnett, which you might've yep. had sort of obvious ones. Um, and then, of course, Misery is in here as well. Yeah, well, uh, I can't remember who. I think Ellen is reading like a Misery book. Yeah, yeah. Dan Dan Ducks laundry baskets. That's there. The it one. is. Yeah. There's and also it, the in, Inside View, which is like the scandal publication. Uh-huh. I believe they mm-hmm. talk about Johnny. That's also in the Wastelands. Oh, fun! I didn't know that. I didn't mm-hmm. catch that one. And uh, Mr. Smiley Smile, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. uh, I, I actually really puzzled over that one for a little while because I was like. He doesn't mean that character to be evil. Is it just like, just is it just a smiley face? Sometimes a smiley face, just a smiley face. Um, <laughs> that can't be. But anyway, uh, that I think that about covers it for me. Um, I've got. There's a reference to sour ground. Um, they say mm. the ground over there is bad, bad for mining, bad for farming, bad for everything. Sour ground is what the Shoshone called it. Uh, and I love that because it's made me think of Pet Cemetery, where, yeah. you know, the, they, it is, they use the phrase sour in Pet Cemetery as well. Right? The ground is sour, yeah. yeah. Stony. Yeah. Stonier than I meant. I did another <laughs> Pet Cemetery one. When um, on 402, when David is saying, then let God clean it up. It's not fair for him to come after, uh, come to me after he killed my mother and sister. And that was very like, tell God to get his own cat moment, which I really appreciated from Ellie from Pet Cemetery. Yeah. Um, There's also a quote, uh, desert lore, scripture in the wasteland. Mm. The wasteland. Oh, that's fun. Um, Yeah. And then wait, um, did you mention the Wendigo reference? I missed that. So yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really is, quick, yeah. but it's like that reminded me also of Pet Cemetery. So clearly, it's on the mind. But um, and then there's also uh, uh, Billingsley says one is that they uh, there are all kinds of stories about it. One is that they dug up a wazen, a kind of ancient earth spirit, and it tore the mind down. Another is that they made the Tommyknockers mad. What are mm-hmm. Tommyknockers? David asked. Troublemakers, Johnny said. The underground version of gremlins. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Different mm-hmm. different interpretation of Tommyknockers there, but they both live underground, um, at least. Uh, there's a reference to cordwood, which I think uh, <laughs> we all remember. Um, which made me laugh. Uh, and then let me see here. Can I jump oh. in? There's one, the Desatoya Mountains are mentioned in the Little Sisters of El Uria. Oh, right. Um, there's a location in Nevada. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and then the there's some. It's not really King's Dominion since it's linked to regulators, but uh, there are some things that are mentioned offhanded here that are big parts of regulators. Like Kirsten is wearing a Motocops shirt, uh, mm-hmm. which is a cartoon which ends up playing a pretty big role in uh, the regulators, which is kind of a fun little moment. So yeah, I was assuming we were leaving regulator yeah, references think, after this. Yeah, I think the only that was the only one I added, and only because it uh, it doesn't really serve any purpose in Desperation. Um, a lot of them like link up sort of you know pretty explicitly but i just thought it's like a one-off reference to that cartoon so i thought that was kind of neat um cool uh let me is this i think i have one more here oh go forth um okay so on page 60 um johnny is talking about um not liking a book he was writing and that he (laughs) baked it and put it in the microwave um which reminded me of annie wilkes burning fast cars because she thought it was too um and then i also they mention on page 527 they mentioned strawberry spring which is a short story um and then on like Talking about having eyes, like holes like eyes, reminded me a lot of Eye in the Doorway, which is mm. another story in Night Shift. And then, and the, um, when Brian, Dan, I think you mentioned this earlier, when Brian is, um, David is thinking about Brian and the things they were doing with each other, um, it reminded me of the ant farms and Christine and like that friendship and like the things that you remember and that you kind of, or the, the, the small memories of how can this person be dead if we made ant farms together. Yeah. Oh, and then also when the cloud forming the shape of the wolf rises from the town, I think it's the town. It might be the mine. That is very reminiscent of The Shining where a I think it's a ray, a stingray or something Mm. raises at the end of that book. That's cool. I uh, there's a reference to Indian Springs from the stand. Uh, Very Mm. brief. That's that's some two, three, seven shit. But uh, (laughs) out here, God's country stops at Indian Springs. And even Lord Satan don't step his cloven feet uh, much north of uh, Tanapa or Tonopah. I'm not sure. Um, And then uh, this is just sort of weird. But you know, it's the Canta are mentioned a lot. And Dan, you mentioned earlier the Cantoy, which are you know, the low men in the Dark Tower series, no spoilers, but um, the, I just thought it was interesting because there is one, I believe it's the only reference, but when he says my children of the desert, when Kali says that, he says the Cantoy, what music they make. That was the only time he used the phrase Cantoy. Am I correct? Mm. I believe so. It's also Dracula reference too, right? Like listen to the creatures of the night, what music Mm. they make. Mm. Um, What's weird too with the Canta is in the Dark Tower, they're actually good creatures. Whereas here they're evil. Um, mm. In Song of Susanna, they have like a carved turtle that they refer to as the Canta. Mm. Oh, interesting. And then yeah. One, one last one that just I caught was David mentions that he felt he was guided by hands he could not see. Hand of God, stand. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's a two, three, Close enough. <laughs> yeah. I love it. That's awesome. Um, any other dominions before we move on? Uh, that's a lot. It makes me laugh and think about some of the early episodes. I mean, he was we clearly like, being deliberate about all. I mean, this is. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, he must have. Well, it's. Yeah. This. It's such a difference from the early days of the pod because we would just be like, okay, Salem's Lot, any references to Carrie here? <laughs> 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 and then, yeah, now we're at that sp- that spot where he's just. I think he's really like embracing. Well, this the, book. I mean, the whole like double yeah. publishing thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. he's really. Yeah. Twinning. Yeah, he's having a blast with it, which is fun. It's a fun era of King, I think. Uh, Cool. So let's move on to discuss our final thoughts on desperation in a section we call Final Thoughts. (laughs) 
Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Welcome to Final Thoughts. <laughs> Let's give this book uh, uh, Pennywise, bright red Pennywise clown nose ranking, and uh, we did this for the stand episodes, and I think I'm just going to start adding it to book episodes. Your MVP for the book, who is your favorite uh, person um, to track throughout this story? So, um, uh, Jen, why don't you kick us off? What is your review, your bright red Pennywise clown nose ranking, and your MVP? Whew. Um, I, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. I think this book, I have a lot of problems with a lot of those are because of the baggage that I bring to it. Um, and like we, for my other podcast, we recently talked about Candyman and how that is not a perfect movie, but it like opens conversations. And I think that's one of the things that I love about this book is that it challenges me to think through things and it gives me kind of like a blueprint for um, thinking through some things that kind of have been living inside me for a long time, which I really appreciate. That said, it is often very hard for me to read and I think it'll probably be a while before I revisit this one. Um, so those kind of things kind of balance each other. I think I would probably give this, I think three is the number that keeps coming into my head. Um, mm. I think that's probably... a if I were looking at it without like all of the stuff that I bring to it, I'd probably give it a three and a half, I think. So, but it's hard for me to separate that. And I don't know, I don't know who my MVP would be. I think maybe I'm going to give it to talk. I like just ah. like him as like an entity and kind of what I talked about earlier. I like the concept of him in this book. Yeah. So. Cool. Thank you. Anna, what is your bright red Pennywise clown nose ranking and your MVP? <laughs> <laughs> the, the bright, Red Pennywise clown nose ranking is kind of tough because I recognize that this is not one of his better written novels or mm -hmm. better best uh, constructed or in the themes or kind of, you know, he's, he does is sincerely wrestling with them, but not necessarily successfully or satisfyingly. Sure. So I feel like the real ranking is like three and a half, but I really mm -hmm. like it. <laughs> mm. So like I would give it more of like a four. Um, because it's, I mean, I've, I, like I, it was the first thing I wanted to talk about when I, when I said I wanted to be on the pod, because it's just stuck with me all these, I mean, all these yeah. times I've read it as a, as a drunk or not, you know? Um, so I think that that's my, my rating is four. Um, yeah. and your MVP. God, that's hard. Cause like, like I said, Marinville's so flawed, um, and not someone like you'd want to hang out with. But his chapters are the clearly the chapters, those chapters and the David chapters are the two that King clearly cared the most about. Mm -hmm. um, you know what? I will give it to David because I think that portrait of innocent faith becoming less innocent, you know, yeah. um, is a real thing. It's a thing yeah. that happens when you come to believe that's the second step is coming to believe in a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity. Um, and then, so this, the two to three, I'm just, this will be my final thoughts too. What I feel like he's doing here, if to relate it specifically to AA steps is that journey from two to three, because two, a lot of people yeah. find pretty easy. Like I can believe in a higher power. Sure. Like, you know, there is beauty in the world that isn't random and whatnot. 
But then step three, when you turn over your will in your life, that's what I feel like David is going through. It's like, oh, yay, my friend was saved. Obviously, there's a God. Woohoo. Mm-hmm. And then like, oh, yeah. but God is going to ask shit of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I really appreciate that. I think, yeah, there's something about the earnestness of this book that really appeals to me. I, like all of his work is pretty earnest, but it's it just feels yeah. like he really was trying to figure it out for himself and not just like having fun mm-hmm. with a story, although clearly having some fun too. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm I'm going to go just only because I feel like my thoughts mirror yours in a lot of ways where I can recognize it's not, uh, you know, perhaps A-list king, but the combination, well, like the memories I have of it when I was young and the fact that it challenged me and stuck with me uh, throughout sort of my own spiritual journey, the fact that these themes are pretty like they're not singular to to this book in the in the realm of king but they feel like the most spiritual exploration that exists within king um of his own views about god and as somebody who thinks about god and thinks about religion and and all of those things a lot that really appeals to me and i also just kind of love how gonzo violent it is because that was kind of the thing that brought me to king when i was young was i was a little weirdo who liked violence and um so all those things and the fact that it kind of exists in this really bizarre stew uh, and it, it feels very singular in terms of, of, of a creation within King's world. Uh, all of those things kind of combined for me to give it four bright red Pennywise clown noses. Um, it's to me one of the more exciting King books because it feels genuinely unpredictable and strange. Um, yeah. So, and my MVP, I'm going to go with Jen and say Tack, because I love Tack. Great villain, super freaky, and uh, and I, especially Tack as Kali, because that's especially scary to me. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, Flieger, take us out. Yeah, I, when I first read this book, I think I was just so charmed by the idea that it was a twinner, and that there were the two books, that the covers match, and I think that maybe makes me give it a little bit of extra credit. You know, I like when King plays with the format, like he did with the Green Mile. Uh, you know, upon rereading it, I think this is kind of a bit long. I think that's not the best criticism, but it, I think there's a lot of fat that could be trimmed in the second half of the novel. Um, but I do appreciate how it ties back into the regulators. So I'm going to give it a 3.5. Nice. And in terms of my MVP, I also have to go with Tack. Yeah. Um, funny side story. So when I went to Iceland, they say thank you by saying Tack. Oh, really? T-A-K-K. So, and it's kind of like a, not exactly, but like, it's like an aloha term where it can be used for a few different meanings. So I would talk to people and then they would just be like, talk, talk. And in my mind, I was like, oh my God, it's like desperation. Like they're having, you know, possessed by attack. They're not being thankful. They're just having this like outburst. Um, (laughs) So that just always cracks me up when I hear the talk getting exclaimed. So he's my MVP. And I think, yeah, when he was in the officer, that's probably my favorite version of him. Yeah, there's a. I forgot that there's like a Cigarros um, album called Tech that came out, I think, in like the mid 2000s. And I remember when I first heard of that album, the first thing I thought of was Desperation by Stephen King, which is funny. Uh, well, this is a blast. Lots of heavy, heady stuff here in this book. And I, I love the insight all of you brought to it. Um, Jen, where can people find you outside of the Losers Club? 
You can find me on all of the socials at Jen Ferratu with two N's and you can find me writing for Consequence of Sound. You can also find me on uh, the Psychoanalysis podcast. And like I just mentioned, um, as this drops, we should have just released our Candyman episode, which is part of our month on generational trauma. And um, and then we've got an episode on Terminator 2, a.k.a. my all-time favorite movie coming as a comfort horror movie. So um, Love it. lots of stuff there. Cool. Flieger, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Dan Flieger at pretty much all social handles, various freelancing articles. Um, find me on the Losers Club Discord <laughs> talking about TV shows I'm really into. Um, yeah, that's it. Cool. Uh, Anna, where can people find you? Um, so I have t- I have two podcasts. One is yes. a political-ish one called With Friends Like These from the Crooked Media um, Empire. Uh, it's pretty serious. So, you know, I mean, there's laughs, but it's about like, um, allyship and the accidental harms we do each other. If that sounds like fun Mm -hmm. to you, you'll love the podcast. (laughs) Um, we're doing, you know, black history month right now. Um, uh, and that will be a little heavy. I don't know why I'm warning people away, but this was a heavy episode. (laughs) So maybe people like, like things like that. Um, and then I do, I guess I'm going to contrast it with the other new podcast called Space the Nation, um, which is a podcast I'm doing with Dan Dresner. We did the Churn podcast for Sci-Fi Network, and we are taking the idea of doing political science and international relations analysis to science fiction. And we just finished recapping the season five of The Expanse. And we're going to go on and do um, our next book is Ender's Game. And you can find that podcast on Patreon um, at, you know, Space the Nation. And that is also underscore Space the Nation on Twitter. And I am on all the socials, just my full name, Anna Marie Cox. Cool. Awesome. Speaking of Patreon, you can find the Losers Club on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Barons. We have lots of really fun stuff. We've got commentaries, uh, uh, horror reviews. Um, you get access to our Discord where we're pretty active on there. Have a good time and uh, all kinds of other fun things. So please um, follow us there. Leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on our socials, Losers Club Pod at um, or on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and I don't know, we'll probably get a TikTok and do some Stephen King garbage there. So um, <laughs> probably <What>? not, actually. <laughs> but uh, we're too, we're all too old for that. But uh, yeah, this was a blast. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. And we hope mm. to see you again over long days. Days. And, and pleasant, pleasant nights. nights. We did it. Bye, Consequence Podcast Network.